was posted to the Australian Embassy in Berlin in Germany. I found out that girls were being transported and tricked into jobs out of Eastern Europe and being forced into the sex industry. So I threw myself into volunteer work, really hoping to help in this little needle exchange on a very dark, horrible street where girls were used and abused. But all it did was frustrate me even more. I literally watched girls dying. And you can't unsee some of the things I saw. It just stirred up me trying to look for solutions so that when I got back to my own country where I found out it was happening in Australia, all the things that I had learnt, I could apply here. I can speak the language, I can lobby the government, I can fundraise, I can speak passionately about what's going on. And this is why I started the Freedom Hub, because I realised that the trauma that takes a long time to get through. The Freedom Hub's whole vision was really to try and help them lead long-term successful lives. Welcome to Getting to the Heart of Business, brought to you by The Online Co, where we believe the best way to help small and medium businesses grow is by putting people first. I'm James Parnwell, and in this episode, you'll get to know Sally Irwin, an award-winning businesswoman who heads up the Freedom Hub and has a great passion to see an end to modern-day slavery. You might need the tissues. Sally shares some pretty intense stories, but she also shares her incredible optimism for change. My co-host and marketing pro is Jess Caluso. Jess, it's a pretty serious topic this week, so I thought we could have a chat about the business model Sally uses, which is the social enterprise model. Um, this is businesses that raise money to fund a cause. Are you familiar with any of these? Yeah, there's a couple of easy ones that come to mind. So the first one is the Thank You brand, yep. which I, I know it's definitely in Woolies because I, I shop at Woolies, um, and I believe that it's in Coles as well. So they do things like uh, hand soaps and hand sanitizers and shower gel, that type of thing. Yep. Yeah, so uh, they've been featured on a lot of the um, primetime news channels and stations as well, in, particularly in the past 12 months with uh, our old friend, the COVID pandemic. Yeah. So what they do with their business is they're trying to help end extreme poverty worldwide. So having their products available in Coles and Woolies and places like that, it's a really easy way for people like you and me, just right. regular consumers to jump on board and, and help. You know, yeah, we don't have to go out of our way. We can just buy a different brand. That's right. Very simple. You know, it is a bit more expensive than some of the other brands, that's for sure. Uh, but you know by purchasing those products that they're making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Another one that comes to mind is Who Gives a Crap? <laughs> yeah, love the name. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great name. So it's a, it's a brand of toilet paper. Uh, it also uh, went very was very successful in the COVID pandemic. So they send 50% of their profits go to help build uh, toilets and things like that in developing nations as well. Okay. So, again, another you can buy that online. Is it a subscription model? I believe they do have a subscription model, but you can also just make one-off purchases as right. well. So as you, as you need toilet paper, you can purchase <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yes, and they sold out quite profoundly at the start of the pandemic. They did. As you can they imagine. Did, yeah. So these are two cutting-edge businesses uh, that have set themselves up deliberately to put profits back into social enterprises. Yeah. Uh, apparently in Australia, social enterprises are on the rise. The Social Traders estimates that there's 20,000 social enterprises in Australia generating 3% of the GDP. Wow. And employing 300,000 Australians. Wow. So that's not an insignificant part of the economy. Yeah. So in our interview with Sally Irwin, you'll hear how the social enterprise model works at the Freedom Hub. They have a charity arm, which is rehabilitating and retraining the survivors of slavery here in Australia, and the business arm, 
which is these thriving little cafes that exist to raise funds for the cause. Sally, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So before we get started on your story, I think the first thing we need to establish is modern day slavery. I guess a lot of people think it doesn't exist or you know, this disappeared 100 years ago or whatnot, yeah. um, but that's certainly not the truth. That's right, yes. Yeah. So modern day slavery is happening. It's happening across the world. The estimate is 40.6 million people in slavery around the world. And um, what excites me from a business perspective is that now that we have our own Australian Modern Slavery Act, yes. there's 75% of those people in slavery globally are in our region, which is our shopping ground in Asia Pacific. So the Freedom Hub is becoming very, very active in helping businesses start to assess their supply chains and look at how we can actually directly impact that terrible figure um, and reduce slavery in Asia Pacific. So 40.6 million is a massive number. Yeah. Like that's more than the number of people that live in Australia. Exactly. And um, when we compare this to maybe 200 years ago, it, are we talking more people than... Oh, yeah, we've got more people in slavery today than we've ever had. So that's important. The slavery problem today is worse. Yeah. But when we look back and we see all the stories and, you know, it's, it's horrific, we're yeah. actually in a worse place today. We are. And do you know the numbers in Australia? The estimate is 15,000. Okay. That's the estimate. I personally don't believe that... I think we'd have that many in Sydney alone. Um, that's a Because hunch. they're undocumented, you can't count easily. Well, exactly. They won't come forward because yeah. our system at the moment is criminal justice focused, so therefore they have to come forward to the federal police and not many people will enter or engage into our criminal justice system. Fortunately, the new Modern Slavery Act, the government's come up with a new plan. It's called the National Action Plan to Combat Modern Slavery in Australia. And part of that now is them looking at organisations like us um, to actually start looking at alternative pathways to identify slavery in Australia other than the federal police. So you feel like 15,000 is the sort of lower end of the estimate? Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, somebody, it might be the United Nations, say for every one we know of, there's at least another four hidden. So it could so, be 60,000? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. So that's the context for everything you do. But let's go back to the start and tell yes. your story. Um, this wasn't your first ethical enterprise. Uh, you've worked on things like ethical makeup, ethical weddings, you volunteered in the salvos, and you had a corporate start to your career. Yes. So take us back to the start about how this all kind of got rolling. Well, my corporate background was with Myers Australia. I was a national buyer, ladies' shoes, which is every girl's dream, but it was actually a tough job. Um, yeah, I imagine. And the 80s, um, 80s and early 90s, I don't think business was as transparent and as honest as today. I'm not saying Myers was corrupt, but I'm saying corporate world was. Yeah. And the way you did business was a bit different. And I was challenged even back then with my own integrity as to how we did business. Um, I think there's a lot of power involved when there's a lot of money in a big organisation. For example, we might buy out a whole shoe factory just so David Jones can't get it, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. You know, like it was really cutthroat stuff. But one of the things that really, you know, you can look back in your life and you can put markers in where you've actually had a complete change of direction. And the last straw, I suppose, for me was when we went to Sunday trading, showing yeah. my age, but the fact is we went to Sunday trading and... They were wanting me to actually fire some of the staff that wouldn't work on a Sunday. And I realised that that was really poor integrity. There were some women there, particularly in the cosmetics, there was one lady that was in her 50s. And a lady in her 50s in those days in cosmetics, you know, was on the end of... They were, liked to employ young, beautiful young girls. Yeah. 
for her to lose her job... That's the end of her career? was the end of her career. Yeah. And... And she'd been loyal to the company for... For 25 years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I tried to protest it and I was told it was my job or hers. So I sat there and her tears rolling down her face and I'll just... That was really when I went, okay, I'm out of here. Can't do this. I can't do this anymore. Um, It was always company first, not people. Yeah. Always. As a a national buyer, you're sort of responsible to the shareholders and if the stocks are down, you know, you had to do whatever it took to make money. And so I literally spent the rest of... From that moment on was the beginning of me sort of starting to to leave the corporate world and start to um, look at other options. I literally then threw myself into having children and <laughs> following my husband's career around the world as a... Yeah, so he's in a, the Navy. Yes, he's yeah. in the Navy. Um, and so everywhere we went, though, retail's been in me since I was 14 years of age. So I've always just looked and studied best practice wherever we've lived in the world. We've had 30 five moves in 34 years of marriage oh wow yeah and so and i've watched business all over the world and so i've just studied business all over the world and always in my heart gone one day i'm going to have my own business again and it's going to be one that's going to put people first not profit i love that and so i feel that my time has come very late in life but well actually the other big marker in my journey was when my husband was posted as the australian defense attache so as a a diplomat to the australian embassy in berlin in germany okay and so it was there that I addressed the issue of human trafficking and modern-day slavery. I found out that girls were being transported and tricked into jobs out of Eastern Europe. They were escaping poverty or they thought they'd fallen in love with someone who was luring them to Berlin. And it's there that they were being forced into the sex trafficking, into sex industry. So to keep my head out of the world of diplomacy, <laughs> where I just knew with my mouth I might say the wrong thing and then my husband sent home, <laughs> I started to do um, volunteer work in this yep. um, little needle exchange on a very dark, horrible street um, where girls were um, yeah, used and abused. Yes, yeah, so, and also I felt in Berlin it was a time for me to also help my children not fall into the Diplobrat um, <laughs> system. Okay, Diplobrat, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> all their friends had limousines and drivers and chefs yeah, and, wow. and all the rest. So I really felt that if I was on doing something charity-wise that I can engage them in as well and real-life stories have, have kept their eyes on, on reality. So I threw myself into that really hoping to um, help but all it did was frustrate me even more as someone who loves to succeed in life, in everything I do, I throw myself into things. Um, I couldn't speak the language. so And most of the girls being trafficked that I was meeting couldn't speak the language either, German. I was hopeless at it. 18 months of training, still hopeless at it. I couldn't obviously lobby because I'm a diplomat representing Australia. Australia. Yes. <laughs> We'd be in major trouble if I started lobbying the government about what they're doing about trafficking. So I couldn't lobby. And I literally watched girls dying. They'd mm. arrive at 16, 17 years of age, beautiful, but they'd be shot up with heroin and, and drugs very quickly so that they became so addicted that they wouldn't leave their controller. And um, they were selling themselves for two euros with no condom. Mm. So they'd get AIDS. And I was literally just watching people die. It was awful. It, it just changed my life. And I saw the beat. I mean, literally, I'd spend mornings wiping blood off people who'd been beaten. So, you know, not just females. There were males that were females, if you know what I mean. Mm. You know, so we're just trying to help them get through the day ready for the next night of abuse and beatings. And, and it was just horrible. And you can't unsee some of the 
some of the things I saw that were done to people was just hideous. And after four years of watching them die and watching and just watching the, the things that I saw and seeing the impossibility of solving the problem, the borders are down in Europe for criminals. Yeah. They can ship people across borders, drugs, weapons, all that can go anywhere. But the jurisdiction of the police at the time might have improved, but at the time, the jurisdiction, the borders were still up. Okay. So it seemed impossible. How will you ever end slavery in, in, in Europe? Um, added to that is the shock that I always thought Europe was civilised like Australia, and I never really realised that this was, you know, you think of slavery, you do think of poorer countries. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah so it was, it was a bit of a shock as well. So there was just a lot, but I can now reflect and see that all that did was sort of stop me trying to save everything. It just stirred up me trying to look for solutions so that when I got back to my own country where I could speak the language, I can lobby the government, I can fundraise, I can speak passionately about what's going on. Um, I just knew that once I found out it was happening in Australia, which I didn't actually realise when I first came back, it took me a while to realise, but I just know that now when I got back to Australia, found out it was happening, all the things that I had learnt I could apply here. And, and this is why I believe we can have no slavery in Australia, we're an island. Yes. So we have borders. We don't have the extreme poverty that people are escaping other countries to, you know, that lures people in. So we don't have the big organised gangs and criminal weapons and, you know, the, what you're dealing with overseas that funds the $150 billion business that human trafficking and slavery oh is, goodness. the second largest profitable business in the world. Um, We've got police that are not corrupt. We've got borders. We've got policies. We've got just basic human rights. Fair Work Australia. We do have an award rate system, yeah. you know, like, so we shouldn't have slavery in our country. There is not a legitimate reason other than greed and somebody wanting to exploit someone for their own profit. So, so how does it happen here? Like, how do these people end up in Australia enslaved? Many ways, many, many ways. There's many pathways. This is the difficulty about defining modern-day slavery. As long as I have come up with a way in my mind to exploit you for profit, it's slavery. Okay. But we have to have laws. So the, um, Australia is the first country in the world to define modern-day slavery, and we've defined it around seven areas. So there is actually a definition for prosecution. So we've got forced labour, we've got forced marriage, we've got organ harvesting, we've got child labour, you know, all those areas. So Okay. So there is laws. But people come into the country, the pathway into being in slavery is, is so various. It could be someone coming to study at Sydney Uni. We've got a survivor that this has happened to. She came here. Her whole village got enough money for her. Wow. She was clever and they could see that this was an opportunity for her to get out of the tea farms the whole village saved money for many many years her family's life savings and everything went into getting her here of course australia's a lot more expensive to live in a village in china so she soon ran out of money <laughs> and the shame okay. there is just no chance that she's going to tell anybody that she's run out of money so she went looking within her own culture for work and ended up in chinatown in a slavery in a kitchen out the back in an unpaid an abusive system okay. they take very clever at manipulating and and you know if you tell anybody if you tell the police you'll be locked up they don't know australian laws I've, we've had muslims oh, okay. that, we've had muslims that have been told that they're going to be killed if they tell anybody because australians hate muslims and that they'll be executed we don't execute in our country but they well, don't so they don't know their rights as an australian no, a lot of them haven't yeah. been done any much education 
because they've grown up in a village and they've got okay. another language. So this girl was smart and had learned English and they'd done everything to get her here and she was going to be almost the village's lifesaver, you know. But then there's others that have come here to work. We've got one, for example, that came from Fiji and she wanted to start up her own restaurant. So she had saved up enough money to replace herself in her restaurants in, in Fiji and she arrived thinking she was going to get a great job in a restaurant in Byron Bay, actually. And um, when she arrived, they said, well, we need your passport in Australia, we need the passport so that we can sort things out. Well, that was the end of her identification. Um, get in the car, we'll drive you to your accommodation because that was all part of the package. And it was mm. a, a mattress on the floor in a garage behind a restaurant. She was locked in and brought out every night to do the dishes. It took five years before she managed to, to break away. Right. Yeah. So, so they can come in for for a job. They can come in to study, or some are sold into. You know, we've got another one that was sold by an uncle in a, in Thailand to come over here and and work, but was into a brothel. Um, there's plenty that come thinking that they're they're going to have a better life. The the ones that come out of the Middle East, or they've been a lawyer in their own country, or they've been a doctor or a dentist in their own country, and come here to improve their studies, we find them the easiest to try and rehabilitate in the way that they're smart. They've usually got out of the system very quickly. Um, they've realised that they've made a mistake, and they will run, and they're courageous, and they're more educated. They've usually got English, you know. So we find them much easier to actually work with, and we'll have them within six months, usually through the trauma into the criminal justice system and we will start running classes to help them get the job or whatever it is they came here to do. But the ones that have come from a small remote village in Papua New Guinea or an Indonesian island or, you know, they've been tricked or they've come here okay. believing they're going to have a better life, they're the ones that fall into, into dangerous situations and can be there for a long, long time. So how do survivors get referred to you or how do they come into your help? Okay, so we have probably three main pathways that they come to us. The majority is still through the government's um, criminal justice system. Someone's rung the police or however the federal police have found them because it's a federal issue in our country, not a local police thing. So the federal police have identified that they are in slavery. They are then given to the Red Cross and the Red Cross is the government paid support for traffic persons program which is a 60-day program that gives them their Centrelink and their visa bridging visa helps them get a psychologist once a month for one hour um, um, and does you know does all the good stuff I always imagine the Maslow's needs it's like yeah. that bottom run get the just get yeah, the get basics get first yeah. shelter food <clears throat> safety done and this is why I started the Freedom Hub because I realised that the trauma that they go through is a long term. It takes a long time to get yes. through. And then depending on their English language or their level of education, it's a long time before they're really ready to sustain a long term job. So, And a lot of them have come with bigger visions than working at McDonald's mm. or making bangles and selling them in a market. You know what I mean? So um, the Freedom Hub's whole vision was really to try and help them lead long term successful lives independent of the system and living in a long-term job or having a long-term job that's paid well into why, why they come to the country. So that's the main pathway. Yeah, through the police, yeah. Through the federal police or through the Support for Traffic Persons program. Um, and then the Salvation Army run a safe house for trafficked women with 10 beds in it. They also will refer survivors to us. Um, some youth services, we've got young girls that are running from their families because they're being forced, Australian girls who are being forced to marry and it's illegal okay. in our country. Forced marriage is part of slavery now in our country. So they're running. 
they don't want to put their parents on the stand and they're not going to go through a criminal justice system, so they often end up homeless on the streets or with a youth service. We get referrals through the domestic violence services. There are women who domestic violence can start as a, uh, as a man abusing or beating up a lady, and, but she'll still hold down a job, hide the bruises and not tell anyone it's going on. It crosses into slavery once she loses all her freedoms. No phone, can't leave the house, okay. um, can't um, have a bank account, has to be supervised... Um, and then there might be the violence, or well, there usually is the violence as well, as well yeah. that's going on. But it's it's more that factor. So, as domestic violence centres are starting to recognise that there are women like that, if they do finally run and end up in their shelters, they're going wow because it's a different type of trauma. It's complex, traumatic. Yep. They will refer them to us, so we get some that way. So that's the police or the government's referral pathway. There's our community service pathway, and then the third pathway into our services direct calls. As we are getting more well known okay. with our cafes and with our retail <coughs> and with podcasts like this yeah. and business, particularly with the Modern Slavery Act and all the training we're doing, I trained over 400 businesses in 2019. As more and more people are learning about slavery in Australia, we're getting the calls. We're getting the whole, I know somebody or the next door neighbour's got a cleaner that hasn't left the house for six years. I know somebody, you know, we're starting to get the direct referrals. So um, they're a lot less, but I... We are gearing up and setting up our... We always have, to be honest, because of my experience in Berlin. I have literally set up policies, safety processes and yeah. management systems just so that we are ready to have a lot of people that we're having to manage pre the criminal justice system. Okay. It would always be our goal to get them to then eventually, once they've, they trust us, our goal would be to go through the criminal justice system because who wants criminals like this in our country? Yeah, yeah. And also there's a lot of benefits for them. You know, they get the... Centrelink and they get all that so it would be better but at the moment the process to go straight into a heavy interview with a policeman yeah, is a really scary thing so we've set up so that we can actually hopefully spend some time developing the right trust using trauma-informed interviewing techniques and things like that to help them and then we go with them on the journey through the criminal justice system. Do you run a B2B business and if the answer to that is yes my next question for you is are you using LinkedIn? And if your answer to that is no, there are missed opportunities there. So many of the big deals that are happening these days for B2B businesses are starting from LinkedIn. If you need help with LinkedIn and you want to find out a bit more about it, head to our website, theonlinecode.net. Okay, so tell us how the Freedom Hub works in terms of having, uh, I guess it's uh, businesses that fund the back end. So... It was a little bit different in the way that back in 2014 when I started, most social enterprises tend to run a business for a an issue and it's usually someone else's, you know, for a cause or for, uh, they're giving money to another organisation. So I always felt it was a bit different, but there's a lot more of it now. But it was pretty original in 2014 to have our own charity that we're raising money for yeah. or within the one organization and being a startup you tend to like all startup businesses you just grow ne- without necessarily thinking about <laughs> processes systems even yep. legals yep. so in a perfect world it was actually great because we got to the point by the end of two- mid 2019 um, that we were 60 percent self-funded yeah, through well our done. events through our cafes through our online retail what I learnt during COVID was I should have set up a legal system so that if if, <laughs> if the business or one part of the business fell over, it wasn't going to cost me the entire okay. organisation. So I have learnt a lot. 
we were waiting to see that we'd make it through COVID. But now we know we're through, we're literally sitting down and going, okay, what are we gonna do now to set our business up? So we've got separate entities, so if one collapses, the whole lot doesn't fall over. So when COVID hit and I sat there watching all our events cancel, all our cafe, we might have two or three people come into the cafe and they'd stand at the door with masks and go, two coffees, you know, too scared to walk in the door. Like it was pretty scary times, it if you was. remember. I None remember of us knew well. how it was trans. Yeah, what know. does this mean? We've never yeah. experienced it yeah. before. And we didn't know how it was being carried. And That's like, right. it was just, yeah, so it was pretty scary times. Um, but I was just sitting there and um, I really think, I'm guessing, I probably should do a survey on it eventually, but, but I think the reason we actually made it through, the, the reason we went against the charity trend in the fact that we got 800% more donations than we've ever had is because we've never asked, as in we've been mainly self-funded. The 40% was merely me making sure that people that wanted to help could, that, that the communities or businesses that wanted to donate or wanted to be part of ending slavery in Australia could. Um, and I think 50%, 60% was the model I was going for. But that 50 to 60% got phone calls from me, <laughs> that 40%, sorry. As I'm watching everything fall over, yeah. I'm on the phone going, I need help. We're not going to make it. I've got, you know, at the time I think we had maybe 52, 54 survivors. We've now got 76 survivors. But yeah. they need more mental health than anyone. We're all going through a mental health crisis right now. They, they're too scared to walk out the door and we can't see them face to face. We need laptops. We need to teach them how to use Zoom. We've got to get these, you know, it was an emergency. It really mm. was a crisis. So with a lot of phone calls, people just were so generous. It was incredible. And it just kept going all year. And I do believe it's because they know that once we're back on our feet, a lot of people don't like giving money to charities because year in, year out, they're asking for more, more, more. And so I think people invest knowing that we weren't going to be relying yep. on their money forever. We'll be back on our feet eventually. We're still not there yet, by the way, but we will be. Um, yep, but this is, this is part of it, you know. So I think, um, I think restructuring now means we'll be able to make sure that if, you know, one of the cafes closes or events suddenly we end up in another shutdown, we can't run events, we can make sure that we don't lose the Freedom Hub. Yeah. Whereas I was ringing them all going, we're going to lose the whole organisation. <laughs> okay, so you're going to divide the organisation up. Yep, yes, yeah. I've got a couple of pro bono um, lawyers that are looking at how we can do that best and still keep our DGR status and, <laughs> and all the things that are required for helping people that want to donate, they can, yeah. So you started with about four or five survivors and you've now got 76. Yeah, so that's the business in me. You know what I started out? I was selling clothes secondhand at Glebe Markets. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever money we made, that was the budget. <laughs> right. Oh, we got enough money to take them for an excursion to Coogee Beach and learn how to catch a train, learn how to, oh. to order fish and chips. We'd give them $20 each and they'd have to go to the counter very nervously. All the stuff that I learned as a foreigner in Germany, how scary it was to go and ask. Okay. I'd go self-serve in supermarkets because I was too scared to order in German. You know what I mean? And so all my experience of being in a foreign country, <laughs> I literally made that. That was our early day classes, how to catch a train, how to, how to use the ticket machine, because it's all in another language, yep. you know, how to, you know, how to ask for help. All that stuff was our early days at the so Freedom language Hub. So language barrier is one thing, but if they've grown up in a village... Potentially, yeah. they haven't used a train. Like, oh, exactly, exactly. And if they've been in slavery, like sort of all their life, like some of the Middle Eastern girls, they've never even handled money. Right. They've never had any cash. 
They don't even know what it is. And that's a fun class, our Australian culture class, teaching them, you know, they, our money's so colourful and so decorative. You can spend a whole class just teaching what the pictures are. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get on YouTube and show them a kookaburra laughing and they're like on the ground hysterical. They can't believe that a bird makes a noise yeah. like that, you know. <laughs> right. So our Australian, um, we used to call it Australian culture class. We've called it living in Australia now. Um, by the end of it, we have them doing speeches in our slang, you know. <laughs> but, you know, that's also been a learning process over the years because we would be discovering things that we didn't know about some of their cultures and realised this massive gap. You know, even even a, a Nepalese girl said to me, you know, in our country you'd never call, like if you look at fair work, you know, the employer hmm. or the employee, they it's the boss. You know, what, what's an employer? <laughs> and we suddenly went through our curriculum and had to change all our language from employer to boss in the work-ready classes. Oh, you they know. just didn't know what an employer, what no. the word meant. Yeah. He's the boss, yeah. the boss man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just really, really simple things. We we discovered that girls from a Muslim background would never hang out their washing on a clothesline and we hang our washing in clotheslines in this country, you know, because underwear, yeah. like there's So just, there's a million cultural things oh, from all so many. parts of the world yeah. that are... Yeah. Incongruous with what we the way we do things here. Yeah, we assume so much. And then they're expected, dare I say it, through the system, oh gosh, we've got we've got money for you to go to TAFE and learn English. Well, they don't know how to get the train, they don't have the money for the Opal card, they've got to sit in a classroom with people that use language they don't understand. And there's all our hidden It's mission impossible, yeah. Yeah. And they wonder why they fail. So this is why the Freedom Hub's needed. Where I see us as the stepping stone between rescue and being ready to go to either TAFE get okay. a job, to live in Australia. So we try and address all those cultural things. And it's fun if you've got a few in a class because you get them sharing in their culture. You know, in some countries that's rude. For oh, us putting your thumb up. Sorry, yeah. putting your thumb up on a radio cunt. <laughs> I'm showing you a picture here. But, yeah, doing that is, yep, all so good. So thumbs good. up is, yeah, we're great. Yeah. yeah, great, good on you. But that's actually... Can be actually extremely yeah. rude in some countries, you know. So we've got a whole class on even body language, what's rude and what's not rude, and we've covered a lot over the last seven years. And we're just always tweaking and adapting our courses. So as a as an organisation, you've obviously scaled from from four to yeah. seventy six, yeah. and so yeah. there's all sorts of growing pains in there. Oh, tons. Uh, Every day, <laughs> right down to this morning's computer crisis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. There's lots of growing pains. So, um, COVID's taught every business person their their, their weaknesses. I think it's mm. been an incredible, and I think that's a silver lining. I think that's a good thing because it's made us all reassess where we're at, what's important. Are we trying to do too much? You know, it's been an incredible journey for every. I, I immediately networked. I immediately jumped into as many business networks as I could because we needed each other to survive really um, but pre-COVID I suppose the biggest shock for me was I was a successful businesswoman and I've studied businesses all over the world and I've dappled with business I'd never appreciated that startup is so different than any job I've ever had you know it's very easy to climb to the top it's it's I've never found business difficult until I set up my own. And I think that's because of decision fatigue, to be honest. <laughs> you have to decide every process. Yeah. Like the, when we first got this building, the postman turns up with this mail and it's like, oh, what's our system for processing the mail? Does it go in one box and we all look for it? Do we set up slots like you do in a lot of corporates where you, you know, each person's yeah. letters go into, you know, like it's just the phone rings. 
the Freedom Hub. Uh, hello. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so we need a system for the phone. Yeah. Um, like, it's just everything, you know, um, cleaning. You have to learn everything. Do we need to have sanitary things in the toilets? Or, you know, like, what do we do about the bins? We have to... Everything, everything is major. You've got to research and work out what's best practice for every area. And... Whereas in corporate or in any other job, it's sort of like, oh, I'll ring the IT department or I'll ring the HR well, department. All of that or is there an account done yeah. years ago yeah. by, by the founder who did everything for yeah, a year exactly. or two before hiring people and and gradually passing off tasks, developing systems over maybe decades, and then you inherit that when you walk in the door. That's right. But you're now starting this thing that doesn't exist. Exactly. You've got to create it. Exists. And yeah, you've got to work out what's everything. the best practice. You don't want to set something up that's only going to work for the next 12 months because by then you've scaled to another level. You don't want to have to recreate. <laughs> so I made sure we set up with all online platforms because I knew that that was the way of the future and that's the way of business compared to when I was, you know, I was even pre-barcode days. You know, I'm a, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to business in that regard. So, you know, we set up obviously Dropbox and Asana was our project marketing okay. in back, you know, 2014 Asana's, everyone's like, what's Asana? And Everyone's got it now, I think. But anyway, so it's like Slack and Triffle. You know, yeah, yeah. So we set all that up from the beginning. Obviously, we went straight to zero instead of myob. But, you know, I had to research all that and go with the latest, knowing that I didn't want to have to re-establish things. So yeah. I would say that would be one of the key learnings there as far as really being current, but also recognise that your idea is brilliant, but no one gives a rip about your idea because you've actually got to make things work <laughs> so mm. that your idea can can grow. Um, because if you're flat out working on the product and you haven't worked out your delivery and your processes for managing that product, you can't do the customer service, you can't do, for me, the community service, that will never survive. So you've actually got to make sure you've got all your systems and processes in place and also the legalities. Because the other thing when you're starting up is it's very linked to you and your identity. So you're, you're really emotionally invested. Totally. Um, and you also know the horrible stats that most startups fail. I know. They tell you that over and over again. I can see why. And I must say, at first I'm like, oh, you better sign a confidentiality agreement or whatever. And I'm like, nowadays, if they want to try and copy me, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> off you go. Go for it. Because <laughs> I just know how hard it is. Yeah. And not many people. I think they don't fail because of... I just don't think people want to put in the hours. It's, you know, you're talking 70 or 80 hours a week about something you're passionate about if you really want to do it well, I think, to begin with, because it's full on. But then it's also full on because maybe this is a mistake this is another lesson that I've learned you do a lot of thanks to Google and Atlassian and all these cool corporate businesses you know <laughs> you think employ people for their culture and their heart right <laughs> and I'm like people have to be passionate about what we're doing so employing people at that level without skill is a major mistake because you are growing very fast and you've got to make all the decisions because you've got these people that don't know how to do stuff so I actually am now saying, like I did to Macquarie University last night, no, nah, when you're a startup, go for the most skilled you can for what you can afford and get those processes set up. And then as you get more and more into your cause or what you're developing, then start looking for the people with the heart because you've got this. I needed those skills straight up. I went through a lot of people over the first few years, but also you'll bring people into this level of skills and then we start to grow, grow, grow. And then we actually need a whole new set of skills. So that's the other big lesson for me is that you've actually got to be... I always thought my parents' days, you're in the same company for 50 years. It's a great sign. <laughs> it's actually not. It's a sign that your company's... You're either growing by employing more people with other skills, but mm. we can't afford to do that as startups. So I think I had to learn early that you have to let people go because they're not actually 
capable and they realize it and they start to struggle and then you're starting getting cranky and it's you know it's actually it's it's quite good whereas i think oh what can i do to keep them and then i try and move their job or change their job description and then i've got a gap and i'm having to fill that gap now because i've moved them to where they're more skilled so i think i've, I've learned a lot hr wise for startups because yeah. in corporate world or in most companies you, that's already done you you know you're employed for a job. All you've got to do when you walk into that job is do better than the person that was doing it before you. <laughs> but you don't have to worry about all the side departments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're in the marketing industry, yep. online co. Um, I'm interested in how you market uh, that's the Freedom Hub and what that looks like. <laughs> I'd love to say I was doing better. I do all the marketing. Yep. Purely because, I guess because of my, particularly my background with Maya, I mean, that's what we did. In our day, though, our funnel was, if I had um, my designer shoes, would be through Vogue, and <laughs> we had okay. budget shoes, would be through Women's Weekly, and it was mainly magazines. Once or twice a year, we'd lash out and do a TV ad. <laughs> and um, so we had very few funnels. Um, I threw myself into it pretty quickly because I love marketing, I love design, I love, you know, I designed this as an empty warehouse. I, I love design and creation. So um, I wish I had done marketing as a degree or whatever back in my day, but I did it instinctively, I guess. Um, so I've had to learn about digital marketing. Um, it's been hard. I've done a lot of courses. I've done a lot of incubators and courses for digital. What I have learned is two things. One, I'm not naturally digitally inclined and I'm not good okay. at it. But the second thing I've learned is I now know when someone is good at it. So at first I started to try and employ people to do that and realised that I had no idea. They could tell me anything. If I, yeah. if I organised a company like yours to help me, I wouldn't have a clue. And I was being ripped off a lot of money. So now that I know how to do SEO and I do all our blogging and I do all the SEO on our website and I've, from what I've learnt, the basic stuff, mm. um, I can now tell if someone's doing a good job or, or not a good job pretty quickly. So it's only now, particularly since COVID, I knew the only way through this was to market our way. Um, before that, it was just really word of mouth. Most of our marketing was people... We'd have hundreds of people come through here a week. Yep. All my business training on ethical business, I'd have whole corporates and hundreds of people and audience there. So we really grew organically with very little marketing. But since COVID, I've had to market and put some money into it. Um, given up on Facebook because they keep shutting us down because we're too political. Um, and I've wasted money. So, so for the first time ever, I have engaged a digital marketing company in Melbourne. But they're focusing on our Google grant because I could never leverage that either. Your Google Ads grant? Yeah. Yep. You know, ten, they, they're very generous with their 10000 but no one can spend it. No. <laughs> it's very We typical. have spent it once, but yeah. Have you? Oh, wow. Yeah. Even this company, but I could, I'd could. i be lucky to get 1000 a month it's, out of it. It's hard. It's to very, it. very yeah, hard. It's I think they've got it up to four or 5000 at the moment, which is great. So I know that's better than before, and we're paying them to do that, which is I hate paying money on marketing because I love, I love it myself. <laughs> but I just recognised I can't do that. I've recognised I can't really do ads as, as successfully. Same reasons really the analytics and understanding how to best put the money so if I need to I will spend money on that um, and then during COVID we've had some generous people that get it with grants and with donors I've also discovered during COVID is that some people really want to give just to the survivors and don't want to think about business or marketing but what I love is the business people that go they understand how successful we've been so far with the business and they want to see the business keep going so I have had people give me money just for marketing because suddenly we had to do home delivery well how do all these units know we're here we've never told them we're here because they all worked in the city yeah 
they commuted. Now they're working at home. We've got to tell them we're here. So I've got to get letterbox drops out. I've got to get into these high rises. We've got to start marketing online to let them know we, we actually exist. Yep. <laughs> Whereas before we, we lived on the people that worked here. Now they're working at home. Half right. of them are in Manly or, or, you know, we've lost all that customer base and now we've got a whole new customer base. Locals, yeah. yeah. So fortunately I have had the people that have gone, aside from the cause and aside from all that, we want your cafe and your business to succeed. Um, here's money for marketing, which has been nice. So I have invested some money. But generally it's word of mouth. And, you know, 50, 60 volunteers, making sure they're all sharing and, and talking and, and that. I mean, that's marketing as well. And then all the corporates that, do invest or are part of what we do and believe in what we're doing I'm always giving them the gentle reminder to, the thing is awareness raising for what we're doing it's a double edged sword the more awareness we raise the more identity there is for survivors as well Yeah. so sometimes it's more easy to spend all our time on awareness and not spend money on survivors but most people want to donate for the survivors forgetting how much an impact we have with our awareness so most of the people listening to this are small and medium business owners. Mm-hmm. What's the best way that they can help eradicate slavery in Australia? Yeah, there's lots of ways. So when I was growing up, if I saw a snotty-nosed kid in Ethiopia with a big tummy and, you know, yeah. I used to feel completely disabled. And so I was really determined when I started this that there would always be a way for people to be able to help. Every Australian should be able to help end this crime in our country. So this is another passion that I have and that's another reason there's so much retail besides the fact that that's my background I now have set up the cafes and the event space but we've got online retail we've got our ethical business consultancy business we've got all these other ways that anyone can actually you can come here for a cup of coffee and you will be making a difference you can be in Broken Hill and go it's Mother's Day coming up I'm going to jump online and buy an ethical candle that's slave free and it burns for 50 hours and it's good for the environment you know what I mean they're making a difference Mm. a small to medium business owner the best thing they can do to end slavery is actually get on board with the whole modern slavery act and that is by submitting a voluntary modern slavery statement so the modern slavery act requires any company that earns has a revenue of over 100 million dollars to submit a modern slavery statement that has risk assessed their supply chains so all the big companies now Woolworths, Coles, all there they're all doing this and so they have um, 18 months effectively from the beginning of their financial year to do it so they're all coming in now yeah but that only addresses 3,000 businesses in Australia and they're all very very big But their supply chain, having been an expire, I know what it's like with all the different looking at my supply chain. If I'm now one of those big companies, I've got due diligence to do and I'm looking at a small business and I'm going, well, you've actually put in a voluntary statement. You've done the risk assessment for me. I don't have to pay someone to do it. You haven't. Then, of course, I'm going to start going with you. So my big drive and my big passion and what I'm trying to help small businesses do now is all the hacks how to, how, to, how to audit and assess your supply chain the way we have with an Excel spreadsheet and not having to spend the millions that other companies are having to spend, hundreds of thousands, on getting auditors into China and into Thailand and all the rest. So th- that's the best thing that they can do, I think. They can actually look at their own supply chains, start going, what's high risk, what's low risk, let's see if we can get more low risk business supply Let's get a statement together. Let's get it into the government's registry. That government registry of businesses that have submitted statements is probably going to be the future shopping guide, I think, for anyone that's looking for a, um, an ethical supply chain. 
Okay. So it's a really good thing to do. So you train business people in how to run their business ethically? Is yes. that a separate so, thing? That you're no, it's part about? of that. So okay. I train people on modern day slavery and then we train them on the Modern Slavery Act and how to comply to that, the seven compliance factors within that. I train them on how they can actually submit a voluntary statement, but then they've also got to look at their processes and how they, their HR, that they've got all the right policies in place, what have they got for grievances, all the human rights side of you know, whistleblowing, all that stuff. So all our policies that we've developed and drafted around all that as well. So there's a lot in it. And they just take what they can. Um, but if anyone wants to be one of our suppliers, they must do that. <laughs> they, they actually have to because we cannot take the risks. Yeah. So all our suppliers have to go through a lot of a lot of signatures and a lot of processes before we can take them on. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of people come and do the training and then they'll go, okay, I'm only going to do this much and this much. But it doesn't matter how much you decide you're doing, if it's even a small amount you can still submit a statement saying this is what we are doing, we've started the path and then the next year we're going to do this much and the year after you can have a 10, 20 year plan. All the government want to see in these statements is that you're improving. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you might just... taking steps, yeah. Yeah, they're taking steps. There's no fines. You can actually declare that you've found slavery. There's, it's not going to make any difference. The government's that you've declared where you've found it and you've got a process in plan. They've so got to do that because... You know, if well, we if we did the chocolate tomorrow, we'd all be on strike because we would die if we didn't get our chocolate. You know what I mean? Well, Woolworths <laughs> has got twenty thousand products. Exactly. And so, who knows where all the ingredients from exactly. those products are sourced exactly. from? So, working through that's a big, big. That's big right. Time. So they've got to decide where they're starting, how they're starting, and how long a plan. And every year, show an improvement. So, really, I think if a small cafe like us can do it, everybody can do it. Okay. So that means that you can have a clean conscience that you're doing the right thing yourself, yeah. but potentially people will want to deal with you and work with you because you um, have taken the time to make sure you're, you're clear. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So where are you headed? What's your goals and dreams for the Freedom Hub over the next Well, the biggest years? silver lining on our, um, for us out of COVID was that we had to very quickly get all our survivors online. That has now opened us up to the fact that we've had to literally spent, I've spent most of last year not only learning digital marketing, but also getting our curriculum online. Because doing a face-to-face -face with people with English as a second language or with trauma, you can adapt. Our curriculum is just very basic and therefore we would adjust it to who's in the room. Mm. Putting it online is a whole different factor. So we've had to design the courses so it's at the lowest denominator as in the terrible English and probably little education and so it's very very basic but we've got every single course now online with lots of videos and lots of explaining and and showing and how to do things so the vision now is to roll this out across Australia so if we actually find or identify survivors in you know Townsville we can actually help them so the vision is to expand nationally yes for yeah. the first time and potentially into Torres Strait Islands and some of the Pacific region we could go around the world, but I just don't think we'll manage it, given that we, we're still trying to work out how to manage the technology. Yeah. <laughs> but we have been given some solid grants to buy laptops and dongles so they've got data, because they don't even have data. You know, of course. Yeah, yeah. So it's really a, it's an expensive vision. Um, but the idea is we then have, in every major regional area of Australia, we will have an ambassador and that ambassador will have teams of volunteers. And within those volunteers, they've got two roles. Some of them are more advocacy and awareness because that will help us identify more survivors. And then the others are being trained as trauma-informed education coaches. 
So their role will be to be able to meet with the survivor, train them on the on the laptop, troubleshoot. We're putting TeamViewer into every laptop so they can actually jump onto TeamViewer yep. if they need to. We've got we've had to go through the whole exercise and expense of finding secure phones so that they can communicate without it all being in the cloud or any chance of because once you jump into cyberspace, you are right in there amongst the human trafficking criminals. Yeah. So we've had to do a lot of research, a lot of work, and we're still applying. That lady downstairs you saw me talking to, all she does right now is write grants for me. We are just applying for grant after grant after grant to just try and scale from a security side of things, our IT and tech, yep. which is expensive. Face to face was great and it was very successful, which is why we've grown so much, but it made us Sydney centric. So to be able to scale interstate and all over Australia and wherever, we need, we actually need the technology to do it well. Mm. Yeah, wonderful vision. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your cause. No and I'm, I'm sure um, there'll be people listening who are shocked um, yeah. and, and hopefully also motivated to, to start ending this in Australia yeah. and be part of ending it worldwide. Yes, yes. Well, we can. As I said, 75% of the slavery is in our backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. No problem. Thank you. That was Sally Irwin, and you can find out more about her work at thefreedomhub.org. On that website, you can read about their Modern Slavery Act workshops. Jess, how did you feel when you first heard this interview? Yeah, I think I felt a bit shocked, Yeah. to, to be honest. I sort of, I'm aware that slavery exists. Uh, I definitely was not aware that it exists in Australia to the extent that Sally identified yeah, it's, it's staggering. Yeah, and, and, you know, to think that today there are more people in slavery than, you know, sort of 200 years ago, 300 years ago. In any point in, in history. In any point yeah, in history. 40 yeah. million worldwide. It's it's just inc- horrific. Yeah. That, yeah, it's, um, it's really eye-opening. And she mentioned there are a lot of ways that we can help her and, and the organisation. And She talks about the Modern Slavery Act workshops mm-hmm. and the big end of town are being forced to review their supply chains to make sure they're clean, uh, which for some, well, for that size company is, is massive. It's a massive job. Um, but Sally runs workshops to help the smaller end of town do that as well. And, and if you do that, then you can be certified and um, it's going to open your doors for your business. So that's a yeah, good business decision. Mm. I was actually aware of the modern day slavery problem before. Okay. Uh, we've been supporting uh, other charities in this space for quite some years. It's still shocking and horrific. There's, there's some things you can do as a business to make sure your supply chains are clean, um, which I think are pretty powerful. But particularly in terms of the Freedom Hub, I, I know that they've been really smacked by, by COVID. Yeah. Uh, being a cafe, the, you know, the whole hospitality industry really, really copped it back a year ago. And, and a lot of these guys are just getting back on their feet. So I'd, I'd like to personally ask if you'd consider supporting them somehow. Um, if you're in the Waterloo area, it's a beautiful cafe. It's got great food. You, mm. You'd enjoy yourself. Um, but also you go to their website thefreedomhub.org and there's some things you can do there you can buy candles you can actually gift a survivor so these survivors often escape with just the clothes on their back so you can give send them a 40 dollars gift because they're basically rebuilding mm. their lives so there's a few things you can do to support them um, that way and and if this is something that you feel passionate about then that's potentially a good way to start so jess um 
she talked about digital marketing quite a bit there in the interview and specifically about educating herself. Yeah. Um, so she knows if the people that she's hiring are doing a good job. What, what do you think about that? I think that's a great example. Yeah, totally uh, I, agree. I think for any solopreneurs or people starting out in business or, or just anyone who's, who's unsure of digital marketing, I 100% advocate for you to go and learn digital yeah. marketing yourself. And you don't need to become a guru. You don't, you don't. It's but understanding the basics. That's, that's right. Jump on Facebook, open up Facebook Business Manager and start posting ads. Just see how they go. Yeah. Just spend $50 and see yeah. how it goes. Jump on Instagram, start posting, even set up a, a private Instagram profile and practice doing reels and doing stories and things like that if you don't want people to see, yeah. if, you're, if you're unsure, <laughs> if you're nervous. Uh, even with, with SEO, start looking at keywords in your industry. Yeah. You know, the great thing about digital marketing, particularly with social media, is if you post something, you know, pretty much most of the time it can be deleted. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can't make too many terrible mistakes. So, and as your business grows and you get to a point where you can then outsource that or you can employ people to do that for you, you have a really good understanding of what they're doing. Yeah. And you'll know if they're doing a good job or if they're doing what you need them to do. Yes. So we actually have on-demand workshops designed specifically for this. Yeah. So if anybody comes to us and they're interested in learning a little bit more about that, we, we point them to these on-demand on workshops. They're on our website. We also have one-on-one -on -one coaching that we can do yep. as well. Sally touched on a few things around digital marketing James and one of them was uh, around learning it and understanding it yourself and she's mentioned that because she wanted to understand it and so for me that sort of raised a question around uh, ethics in digital marketing and so we're, we're a digital marketing agency I wanted to get your thoughts and see if you could explain how do we do things ethically in yeah. an industry that can sometimes have a bit of a bad name. <laughs> Yes, well, I, I guess it just can be murky as to what is being done. You're paying this money to someone and what are they doing? So transparency is really the key word we, we use a lot. Yeah. We talk about digital marketing that puts people first and, and how are we going to do that for our clients? Well, it's around transparency. So I think it's really important that you're able to speak to the person that's doing the work. Yeah, definitely. Rather than having someone in an unknown country with an unknown name, having access to your website, your social media accounts and your Google Ads account, all these yeah. all these business critical pieces of yours, doing who knows what at what quality and being paid what price? Like what, how much are they getting paid now? There's a, yeah. there's a whole stack of murky questions in there as opposed to being able to get on the phone and have a chat to someone and say, oh, what's happening with my SEO at the moment? Yeah. Um, the way we structure things is that we do a 12-month rollout plan. So it's not just transparent around what are we doing in month one. It's also strategic to say we're heading in a direction for a result over time. Mm. I think that there are operators that potentially just say, right, what are we going to do this month? So we're actually planning that out 12 months to say we can achieve results by building upon month by month by month. And you've got access to that plan. So at any time you can go, oh, we're month three, that's what's being done. So we have... Uh, monthly reports. The problem is the average punter can't read the data. We want to turn that into basic English, into business speak. What happened on your website was this. You got this many more visitors and this many more people contacted you um, because we optimised these pages to get this result. So it's, it's taking it out of 
uh, kind of techie land and, yeah. and, and jargon land into into plain English. Because that, that was one of the biggest issues the industry has with reporting is yeah. it's a bunch of jargon. So, and so you will record a video pulling out the highlights and you'll generally see the face of the person that's done it and that, yeah. the face of that person is local and then you can ring that person and say, hey, what did you mean by? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. If you want to dive deeper into yeah, it, you can. Right. So all of that means your odds of getting ripped off have greatly decreased. Yeah. If you've got some some knowledge yourself and you employ someone who's very transparent about the work they're doing. So coming up next week, you'll meet a guy who has had two career paths that couldn't be more different, circus performing and financial planning. He's Phil Thompson. He owns a company called Sky Wealth, specializing in life insurance. When COVID hit, Phil was in an amazing position because he'd just finished shifting his company to being completely virtual and online. But the stars weren't always quite so well aligned. Phil shares about some of his worst mistakes and challenges too. It's quite a story. This episode of Getting to the Heart of Business was brought to you by The Online Co. Produced by Claire Bruce, music by Harry Parnwell. You can find us at theonlineco.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, it's quite likely that one of your friends will enjoy it as well. So feel free to share it with them. And please feel free to come and join us in our Facebook group, Getting to the Heart of Business community. 